Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now, baby wearing is still somewhat fringe in our society, despite being exactly how babies have been kept close to parents for most of human history. I mean, it's not like we had strollers back in the Stone Age. When people utilize baby wearing today, most still only do so for convenience. After all, if you've tried navigating strollers on public transit, you know the nightmare. But is there more to it? Attachment parenting advocates keeping babies close to build attachment and foster bonds, but does it really do that? This week I had a chance to talk to the one researcher who is bringing baby wearing back to the lab to help us answer these very questions. Dr. Leela Rankin-Williams of Arizona State University is the first researcher in decades to look at how baby wearing may influence the relationship between baby and caregiver. If you've thought it's just a fad, I hope Dr. Williams can help change your mind. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Leela Rankin-Williams. She is a professor in the School of Social Work at Tucson at Arizona State University. She completed her doctoral and postdoctoral training in infant and child development, and she is also a certified baby-wearing educator. Dr. Williams conducted two randomized intervention studies in the community to empirically test the benefits of baby wearing among teenage mothers in study number one and mothers with substance use disorders in study number two. She has demonstrated health, mental health, and developmental benefits associated with baby wearing for caregivers and infants. Dr. Williams has published two books two book chapters, 60 peer-reviewed manuscripts, including serving as a guest editor for a special issue on the developmental impact of infant contact, and has presented over 100 times at national and international conference meetings. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to be here today. It is. Your work is amazing. So I am so excited to be able to dive in with you as opposed to just, you know, either reading the study itself or getting third-hand knowledge from, you know, a journal or a popular press article or something like that that tries to talk about all the nuances that go into research there. That's what we're talking about today are those studies on baby wearing. But before we get there, because I'm always interested, how did you become interested in this topic? What led to it? Both infant and child development more generally, but also then that specific interest in baby wearing. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I completed my PhD in child development long before that I had children um, and or was married. It wasn't on my radar. And so when I became pregnant and kind of entered into that world of what are the things that you need to get and buy to to take care of a baby, um, a baby carrier was something that was recommended as one of those items. And I just kind of, I had it off to the side. And when I had my baby and um, I realized that I was very unprepared as far as an expectations for what it really meant to take care of a baby, that, they, that they're not just put on the floor or put in a swing and they're content that that, that, that would be enough. Um, and I realized that the only way to keep him happy was to hold him. And I was like, I can't hold them all day long. So I got the carrier out and I suddenly felt like I had a bit of my life come come back because even just basic tasks that seemed impossible, like loading a dishwasher or writing an email, um, because at that time I didn't have a smartphone, um, it all seemed like, okay, I'm starting to feel like I can sort of see parts of my real life coming back. 
Um, and then my second thought was like, why is nobody talking about this? Like, why did I not know about this as something that would be a, a benefit to both clearly not just my, my benefit was that I could, I could do things of my life, but clearly the baby liked it. Like he was happiest in that carrier with me. So that kind of sparked, like, I need to do research on this because if there's no research, then it's not going to be recommended by the people that need that that need it, like pediatricians or in the hospital. Like, you know, we send people home saying that they have to have a car seat, but we don't talk at all about the importance of being held or um, how to how to get that accomplished. So um, that was sort of my that was my passion behind launching a research um, study. It's funny, as I mentioned to you right before we started, I was a baby wear tube and it was almost by accident. I did actually plan on having one, you know, use it for a little bit. But in my case, it was my daughter absolutely flat out refused the stroller. It was you could put her down in it and maybe get two seconds before the screaming began. And <laughs> it was such a, oh, this isn't going to work. Why did I spend $700 on a stroller that has all these fancy gadgets when it could be, I mean, we didn't actually spend that much, but there were ones that were out there that much. And instead, I had this little cloth wrap that was gifted to me. And she was just so content. As soon as she was in it, just the world is a wonderful place. And it too was something where I thought, if I hadn't had a friend gift me one, I don't know how long it would have taken to get there or how much stress I would have been under to go through all the screaming and trying with a stroller over and over again, yeah. um, when clearly that wasn't what my daughter wanted. And again, getting tasks done, oh, such a actually cooking. And like you too, I didn't have a smartphone when my daughter was young. So it was all sorts of other things that were suddenly doable. So, I mean, you have published the papers and I do want to get to them, but I know that until you did this research, quite recently, these came out, there really hadn't been anything in a really long time. There had not been a lot of research on baby wearing. So can you kind of share for people what had been done prior to your work and why did we need more? Like, and, and yeah. possibly why the big gap too? What happened yeah. there that let it kind of drop off the face of the earth? I know it's interesting. Like the, the studies that I know that were really pivotal were done in like 1986. That was about reduced crying associated with um, baby carriers, particularly in the fussy evening hours that it was more effective. And then the Ainsworth study, of course, was about attachment um, in 91. And so these are like, I mean, that's 30 years old now. So that is, is just interesting. And I, and I have to say, just even as like a scientist, it felt like, okay, how do I talk about this and make it seem like this is a real credible thing that we need to look at? It's not just like a fluffy, like, oh, that's nice. Like, um, thing that there's actually some science behind why this is an effective way that we, that to parent, right. And that it has some real tangible benefits to both parents and to the children. So, um, yeah, I was coming at it from, you know, the literature that I really leaned on was the skin to skin literature. So that would be essentially the kangaroo care that 
that is now recommended as like standard practice in many hospitals of placing babies chest to chest immediately after they're born. And then, um, you know, parents are recommended that continuance of care at home to spend as much time as possible um, with direct skin to skin contact. Um, but then, of course, you know, you can't walk around all day shirtless with your baby naked, like, you know, doing groceries or getting the mail, although some people probably can. But um, yeah, <laughs> but um, I was I just thought, well, imagine if we could even get some of those effects because the skin to skin research is really powerful. I mean, when you look at that literature with premature babies, we're seeing babies that survive, like their life has been saved by that. Um, they're gaining weight, like their temperature is regulated. There's, they're nursing better, like all kinds of like medical health, physical benefits. So if we can even get some of that, right, extended, because then we can baby wear not just in that uh, newborn period, we can really baby wear as long as each person finds it comfortable to do so. So maybe there's some other kinds of benefits that are associated with that, with emotion regulation, language development, motor skills. Like it's kind of endless when you think about all those possibilities that um, can just kind of continue with that great start with skin to skin contact. I love the link to skin to skin. And I didn't even think about that. I'd never even put the two together of Niels Bergman's work on kangaroo care and everything. And just, but in their neonatal period to life beyond as that caring. And also, I think I also just always go back to the fact that, you know, if you look at other cultures and you look historically, we didn't have strollers. We didn't have people that could just carry their babies in their arms all day. They had to create stuff. We have cradle boards in at least I know indigenous Canadian communities that have been used for years. So baby wearing isn't something new. And that's why I always get frustrated whenever I heard people pin it as a crunchy granola, new kind of fangled thing that only hippie parents do when you have to look back and go, no, actually, I think, I think we've actually been baby wearing for a very long time, right? Well, I, I, absolutely. And I think the thing with the thing with babies and getting pregnant and having a baby is that is from a marketing perspective, that is a huge area of where there's a, a endless possibility to make money off of people, right? So you're just inundated with all of these kinds of products that, you know, may or may not. And, and you know, as a new parent, you're so overwhelmed. You're like, well, God, do I need this bottle warmer or this like wipe warmer or, you know, like crib even like, you know, there's all these things and, and you just become like, because it's in a way it's capitalizing on a very vulnerable market because you're so insecure because we've stripped away some of those cultural um, supports and you're on your own and potentially away from family um, that you feel like, well, I need all these things. Um, or, and then, so then, so the strollers, that's just like an interesting thing because I read some consumer research, and so I could be wrong on this statistic, but it was something like 100% of American moms own a stroller um, and only 50% owned a baby carrier, and that's old data. But it was just interesting to me that somehow we've gotten, the marketers have uh, done well by telling everyone that they need a stroller, right? And it's also, I mean, the funny part is they've done such a good job because, as you said, in your experience, it was easier once you were baby wearing. I mean, trying to navigate, I used to bring the stroller for groceries and stuff. That thing is a pain in the butt. I mean, they're big, they're clunky. You can't get on and off buses or even right. in and out of the car. It is like 
it is a hard thing to navigate around. And yet we've convinced people that somehow it's superior to a cheaper, easier, keep your baby close, save space device with that. So, I mean, obviously consumerism, capitalism, once again, for the downfall. (laughs) And I have to say like that is something that's definitely like a Western kind of issue, right? There's lots of other places that that are not buying strollers the way that we are. Um, and other issues, but so that, yeah, so that is something that, um, has, I think just the marketing aspect. And I, I also, I started to do, I, in one of the papers I wrote, um, I had a student of mine look and see where do they put the baby carriers in the, in the store and where do they list it online? And they list them under next to the strollers, like as a transportation device. And I think that's a problem as well because we're just looking at it as a way to take the baby from point A to point B. Um, and that's something that struck me too. When my, my mom came out to help me when I had my third baby, she's like, oh, you know, I had like a snuggly with you, which is actually the first time I ever heard that she baby wore. And she's like, but I never thought to use it around the house. I thought like, you know, that's for concerts. And I'm thinking, well, God, how many concerts did you go to? Like, you know, this is not like a good use of a baby carrier, but she was just so blown away because when she came, my last baby, he was very, you know, hard to leave with anybody. And so the only way that he would even let me leave is if I was like, you have to put him in this carrier. You have to do that because to him, it was a feeling of safety, security, and comfort. And then, so then he was okay with being left with someone that he didn't know as well. That's, and I want to talk about those benefits to babies more in depth. So we should go, but I do, I love that your mom even used one. My mom didn't, she was very responsive in many other ways, but baby wearing was not something that I think had hit that mainstream yet for her enough. Cause she wasn't mainstream actually. She was quite hippie, you know, home birth and breastfeeding right. and all of us while we were three or four co-sleeping, but the baby warrior or baby carrier was not something that she had on her radar at all. So we were all the stroller babies, but I can tell you my sister was not a big fan of the stroller either. So there was a lot of time spent in arms right. and that gets old and hard. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, even holding like a newborn for five minutes, like when you're not seated, it, it is, it gets tiring. Like you just, it, it, you know, there's not, it's not really, um, that, um, surprising when you look back to see throughout time, throughout culture, throughout history, that there's been some version of a sling or baby carrier. Um, when I was in Europe, I took pictures of different paintings I saw that, I've, and there were several of babies in slings. There was even one with like baby Jesus in the sling. So I'm like, okay, if Jesus did it then here. Like there's gotta be something to that. So yeah, like it's, that's not shocking to me that we've developed this, some version of the same tool in across cultures, across time. So that's significant. We should be paying attention to that. Yeah. I always feel that, you know, if we've been, and I know the argument of saying just because we've done it forever doesn't mean it's right or good. I do understand that. But there are times when you say, if it's been working for so many cultures across so many times, across so Mm -hmm. many environments, across so many cultures, we may want to take a look and say, what is it that they've all honed and that they all came to it independently. It wasn't like we had the internet where one culture got it and then spread it over. Say, Hey guys, check this out. It's multiple cultures have used it without necessarily the contact of one to another. It has kind of been something that we've had around for quite some time. So 
your work on baby wearing is under a larger study, correct? The mother-baby bonding study? Yeah, I actually have two. I have the mother-baby okay. bonding study, and then I have the newborn attachment and wellness study, which is the one that's um, out of the hospital. Okay. Yeah. So the research that we have, so can you tell us about the studies more generally, mm-hmm. I guess, the bigger ones, and then where baby wearing fits into the, the theories that you have here and yeah. what you're actually looking at overall? So it was really important to me to randomize baby wearing because a lot of what we know about baby wearing has been from people that have chosen to use a carrier. And so then you can get the critiques like you just said, like, oh, well, if you're choosing to baby wear, you probably also are, you know, breastfeeding and that's why you're getting these benefits or whatever else. Like that, just like the type of person that would choose to baby wear is getting these specific results. So that's why uh, randomized um, experiments are so important. And so in both of those studies, I did do a randomized study design. So with the moms and the mother-baby bonding study, um, they're young moms. And so young moms are at a higher risk of just having a harder time in general. Um, They don't have as many resources and they often have um, more challenging infants. Um, You know, if they're born early, they may be more irritable, have a harder time feeding and that kind of thing. So they're kind of have, they have more challenging infants on average, and then they have less resources essentially to cope with that. What can I just ask, when you say young mothers, what kind of age are we thinking of in terms of the risk for these? So I took age 15 to 24. Um, I know some people may think like the 24 year olds aren't as young. And I do sometimes look at to see if there's differences between them. But from a developmental perspective, um, we know brains are still developing uh, into the early 20s. And so technically, we don't consider um, people as like full grown, full fledged adults until they're 25, 26. I don't know, that might be like, offensive to some, but maybe like great news for others. Um, (laughs) But it's related to like impulsivity, decision making, planning, abstract thinking and things like that, that we still consider people in their early 20s to be um, like a young or emerging adults. So that was my um, my group of people that I selected into the study. And then um, I, they were attending um, prenatal classes that are also geared for young mothers so that they didn't have to take classes with like older married people and feel any stigma associated with that. Um, and so I invited them to go into the study and I just said, you will be receiving a baby item and I'm going to ask about your experiences with birth and parenting. And then I'll also be asking you to comment on the baby item that you received. So um, half of them received the baby carrier and were asked to wear the baby for an hour every day. Um, and then the other half were received a baby book set and were asked to read to their baby. And the book set was a high contrast set that's geared specifically to be attractive to newborns. And um, reading is actually um, is an attachment-based intervention also, but it doesn't have physical contact. So my, my goal was to... It's not the interaction between mom and baby because they're both interacting with their baby, but it's I wanted to isolate a low contact and a high contact to see if it was the physical touch that was resulting in some of the benefits that I was hypothesizing that we would see. So 
you had this. And so you had in the papers I've read, there were two main outcomes that you looked at, both attachment security and the behaviors in the still face paradigm. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you actually found in these groups with that kind of differentiation? Yeah. So I looked at a few um, different things. Uh, Thing. So I had uh, surveys that the moms completed on their own experience with bonding and um, it, challenges associated with that, their health, mental health. Um, and then they also completed a video task, which is called the still face paradigm, where the infant and the mom sits across from one another. And we videotape that um, and they're asked to interact normally without touching um, for two minutes. So the baby's in a car, like an infant seat, not a car seat, like a, almost like a high chair seat. Um, and then I tell them for their mom's face to go still. So don't react at all to whatever the baby does. You just keep eye contact, but you're not reacting. Um, and then we have, after that two minutes, I say, okay, you can go back to resuming as normal. So we call that a two minute reunification so this is a, mi a mild um, stressor for the infant. And so what when you're looking at someone's attachment system, what you want to see is when a baby or uh, an adult is stressed, is what is the response, right? So because when you get stressed, you're activated, your attachment system gets activated. And so we want to see insecurely attached infants that they're able to be soothed and calmed by their person that they've attached to. So what we're looking for is in the still face that they might get distressed and they might try to get their mom's attention, right? So you might see them starting to make noises, move their arms. And then in the reunion phase, they're calmed down by the mom. So the mom is saying things like, it's okay, I'm here. They may be playing games, smiling. So the baby may still be have some residual like anger about it, but in general, they're able to kind of come around. So when babies are not securely attached, and there's a few different subtypes, there's three different main subtypes of that, but we see different patterns of them essentially not showing that a secure attachment. Either they're very upset, very angry, and they can't be soothed, and sometimes they escalate. So then they're really worked up and mad. Um, or they could be a baby that's avoided their mom completely and was never even distressed. They couldn't. They didn't even get distressed in that paradigm because they're essentially used to being left alone. Um, and so they don't have that attachment system. So what I was able to find is that um, moms that were in the baby wearing condition, that they were more likely to have um, securely attached infants. And the ones that were in the control condition were more likely to have a disorganized um, insecure attachment type, um, which is that insecure attachment type is the one that we consider to be one of the ones we're most concerned about. And it's usually a combination of this anxiety and also um, avoidant tendencies. It Those numbers I have to go back to because they fascinated me. And it, I mean, in a sad way, because right. you had, I mean, I think it was 57% of the control group was disorganized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seems really high. Well, you also have to keep in mind that young moms are at a higher rate of having dis disorganized attachment um, because of the increased stress and the factors that I mentioned before. Um, so they do have fewer secure attachments in general in that population. The other thing is the babies were seven months old at the time that I did that. And so we don't really know how stable 
that's that attachment is the sort of the gold standard is the strange situation that's done at 12 months usually. Um, and that would be a more reliable measure. Um, so, and yeah, actually, um, I was one of the first people to look at the still face as an attachment measure using this coding system. Um, so we really need more research to see how, like, is, is attachment at seven months stable or is that, you know, is that going to fluctuate and change by that and settle into something different? That makes sense, actually, then, because I also always worry, I think about my own daughter at the time, she was a very reactive baby, highly, she could get stressed very quickly, but I could soothe her easily as well. But I do wonder, you know, two minutes of me, especially being the (laughs) secure attachment person, just not responding, how much stress would that lead for her? And how would that go up? Right. And that's kind of one of those things where I do wonder, you know, how that would look at that age versus later. And just to to clarify in the still face paradigm for people who don't know the paradigm, um, in the reunification period, the child is still in the seat. They're not, you know, mom's comfort is still verbal to a certain degree. It's not a, I'm going to go pick you up and hug you and get that physical contact and calm you through that. No, you're absolutely right. And so that was the second paper was kind of looking at, um, how moms responded to. And so we saw moms that were in um, the baby wearing condition that they were, they were able to calm and soothe their baby more effectively. And, and their behaviors were more exaggerated, positive um, behaviors. So they would, like I was saying, um, essentially do things that wouldn't seem normal to another adult. You know, they're like really high voices and like using games and peekaboo and stuff like that. Um, whereas the moms in the control condition had a flatter affect, like it's okay. And like, it wasn't as engaging or we also saw some giving up. So sometimes they would just stop and sit in silence for the rest of the, um, duration of the paradigm because they weren't, um, able to come up with something else. Um, either in those cases, it was usually to engage their baby because their baby may have disconnected. So that those were other behaviors that we were looking at was how, what was the the mom's reaction during this as well? That's so sad to hear just the giving up of someone. But I see it because if I would imagine in a lot of those cases without the support or anything, the stress for the mom in that situation would be quite palpable too. The anxiety of having an infant you may not be able to comfort is hard, right? That's a, a... difficult thing. I always think about the times when I get most triggered and it's when you feel helpless. Like, I don't know what to do here. And the instinct is I just need to walk away because I don't know. And trying to overcome that with a child to be able to provide what they need is so important. And so, so crucial, our little babies. Um, so with this, so you had the greater attachment security. Now you also mentioned there seemed to be those two patterns in the still face paradigm, both kind of the upside down you pattern, which kind of went with a secure attachment. So we did see importantly, I think I want to hone in, you did see distress in these babies when the still face time was going on, even with a secure attachment, correct? Well, yes, because if if a baby is securely attached, they should be upset if their attachment figure has left them essentially like that's a normal reaction to be oh what happened like we were just talking and now you're not there and what's going on 
So um, I always like kind of say a joke to people when people talk about like, well, the baby gets upset when I put them in the car seat. And I'm like, well, you must have a secure attachment because it's not about the car seat and how comfortable that car seat is. It's that they want to be with you and now they're not anymore. And so that's why they don't like the car seat. So you got a secure attachment there. I am so glad you said that because that's exactly what I often have to tell families too. When I work with them, I get families that are panicked that their child gets distressed about separations or whatnot. And they feel, I think something's happened in our culture where we tell parents that's a bad thing, that somehow secure attachment means your child's going to be happy with other people and explore and go do this and that. And they can sometimes, but actually they want to be with you. That is keeping them alive. Yeah. And the other thing that people probably don't really want to recognize is like, it's so good for babies to learn short periods of stress and then reassurance because then they learn how to cope in the face of stress because life has stress all the time. So it's not, it's, it's a disadvantage to say like, we want to protect our infants and babies completely from any kind of stress. What we want to know is if they're stressed, like if they're hungry and they cry, that's a stress, I'm hungry and I cry, can I get my need met? Is somebody going to come and feed me? And then I get assurance that that's going to happen. So it's not about like your child never feeling hungry or you're never feeling like, um, you know, any kind of discomfort. It's about when they feel that, do they know that they can, you know, essentially ask for help and get that served? Exactly. And I think just to, to extend that a bit, we also have this idea that somehow, that distress, what constitutes minor stressors is somehow really big stressors. People think about, you know, oh no, Mike, I need to leave my kid for like an hour. And that's a, you know, short period of time. And it's like to an infant, that's a very, very long period of time. When you think about short bursts of stress, I always think in the span of minutes or even less, right? Like by the time a child is signaling they're hungry, Like you said, Mm -hmm. they've experienced that bit of stress already and then been able to experience the meeting of the need in that period. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, infants are so resilient too. It's not like they need like instant food right away. It's, it's really about that relationship and building up a trust and security. It's like, this is going to happen. So whether it takes, you know, some days are shorter, some days longer, but I know that it's going to happen. And then once you have that, then you realize secure attachment, you see it in other ways. Like for example, if a baby's crying and then you walk into their room and they stop crying, right? Because they know you're there and you don't have to have even met the need yet. They just know that it's going to be met. So sometimes they'll just, okay, somebody's here. So I can stop crying. I'm going to get my diaper changed or whatever the situation is. So you'll start to see that um, as another indicator of good attachment. And, you know, the contrast I always hear is some people say, I think my baby's just manipulating me because they stopped crying the moment I walked in. It's like, (laughs) yeah, because they know you're going to do what they need. It's so important that they are actually able to calm in that way. That's such a, a crucial piece to that attachment security is your presence calms them because your presence means they are safe and things are going to happen, whether it's in five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, knowing you're there tells them something crucial. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I could talk about that forever, but the more 
because I, you know, I actually used to do research in adolescence. That was more my area. And it's the same kind of concept, actually, because people worry about, well, if I coddle too much, they're not going to develop independence. It's the same story over and over. And it's like, well, trust me, like your child will let you know when they don't, you know, want to sleep in your bed anymore, or like they, they need more space for this or that. They will let you know, and it's not up to you to push them out they will let you know when they need to create more boundaries and space and they want that autonomy. And so as long as you're there and they know that you're there always, then that provides them with that sense of security that they need. So we actually know in adolescence of those kids that have more security, they're actually the ones that are more independent because they have that confidence to do so. Exactly. It is. And it's just equally, I always say to people, you know, when your child says, I'm ready to sleep, say, apart from you, the down, like the one problem would be if you say, no, you're not allowed to, you have to stay with me forever and ever and ever. That's that kind of unhealthy right. response Absolutely. to it, as opposed to a child who's just like, no, I'd still like to sleep with you. And yeah. I can see that my daughter's entering adolescence. And we had that shift the other day of, well, the other day, it literally was about a month ago, of always wanting to do everything around us. And now suddenly she wants her space and her yeah. privacy. And, you know, go and you're like, I'm kind of sad that right. we're not around all the time anymore. But I know you need this. I never say that to her. But to right. me and my husband, we're like, it's kind of quiet now without yeah. all the chitter but chatter then, all like, the time. One day, but you know, one day she'll come by and need something and she knows that it's there and that there's no like strings attached to that. And it's like, it's there if you need it. And that's like a wonderful thing, right? That's, that's the, that's the dream. That's the ideal of knowing that your child knows that there's a safe place for them when they need it. And otherwise that you have full confidence that they can make the decisions that they need to in their life. Exactly. Exactly. And I love that it's kind of goes back to this very early, these, yeah. you know, what says so all in all, with those numbers that you have, the, the kind of the findings you have about the negativity in the control group, in the still face, the attachment security, what do you take from that as a whole with respect to baby wearing? Like, how do you think this all plays into that? Yeah, so I think so for the study, I had said um, to try to wear the baby for one hour a day. Um, and I said that so that they could kind of develop the habit, essentially. So it's kind of like, I, I also think of it as kind of like, you know, if you're trying to tell somebody to start working out at the gym or something, you're not going to get a benefit of like one workout. Um, but you need to develop that habit if that's just something that you do that's part of your day to day, um, taking care of your baby. And you know, some people will love it and use it a lot and find it really useful. And some people, it's it's hard to get that, that time commitment in uh, for a variety of reasons. But what I find is that the people that, so I did another study within that study because I compared the people that were in my intervention condition to the ones that were in the control condition, but baby wore anyway. And they didn't have those instructions to wear every day. So they didn't have that habit. So the ones in the control condition, they would use the baby carrier, but it was for what we said before. It was for convenience, like to go to the grocery store or to go to the park. They're taking care of other kids. And the ones in the baby wearing condition, they mentioned that. But their biggest thing was for bonding and for calming the baby. Because, um, and you probably know this, like for a baby that's worn all the time, they truly look at that as like a safe place for them. So when you put that baby in the carrier, they're already like, you know, sometimes they're already starting to fall asleep and um, they, cause they know what's happening. And so it's a, it, 
it can be a useful parenting tool that I think is being missed in just the general market. And creating that pattern really early, that's always my recommendation, that even if you can just put the baby in the carrier a little bit every day at the beginning so that the baby gets used to it as well as you, it's, it's about the baby as well, though. And so then when you use it later, um, the baby will have that association with something safe and secure. And it's not that you can't baby wear later on, but at first people, you know, people will say, well, my baby doesn't like it. They arch their back. Um, but it's, it's most, it's usually because they haven't, they hadn't had that repeated um, pairing of like, this is a place of safety and security. That intervention group had an average of only just under six hours a week of baby wearing. So that hour a day, they were just shy of it. And yet you still saw these positive impacts. So clearly they, they made, they had their, their habits built or something, but something else was going on there because, I mean, I just have to imagine something else is going on because I would think that the just practical benefits of getting used to and calming a baby an hour a day, as opposed to other times, might not explain that secure attachment and that responsiveness alone. So what else about that do you think is happening to lead to such strong results over such a short period of time? I think so. The thing that I actually love so much about baby wearing as an intervention is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to say the right things. You don't have to look like look in your baby's eyes for hours on end. Like you literally just have to put them in the carrier and you can kind of go about your life. And what I think is happening is I think there's a lot of hormonal changes that are happening. So we know with skin to skin contact that there's an increase of oxytocin that's released as well as um, oxytocin is released during breastfeeding and delivery. Um, So I have an hypothesis that we're boosting oxytocin during baby wearing as well. And that's something that I would like to um, examine in future studies. So we're actually gearing up to do that in the hospital um, with um, babies born with opioid exposure. So we're hoping to look at um, cortisol as a stress indicator and oxytocin as a a bonding indicator um, with baby wearing. Um, so, and there's a lot of other, you know, people across other kinds of um, fields, you know, there's um, Francis McGlone does um, some touch research in the UK and he's found, you know, these mechanical arms that are stroking babies in the hospital, that those are showing some uh, increased benefits um, through touch. And so it's an activation of these C fibers that is associated with these benefits, which is absolute. So we're, I'm also looking at that, like baby wearing while stroking the baby and not stroking the baby, because when you put the baby in the carrier, a lot of times people stroke the baby's back as like a habit. So maybe it's activating that system. Um, there's a lot of people that do research on infant massage that are showing also similar benefits, that tactile response to touch. Um, there's also some indicators that maybe it's the compression of the carrier. And so that activation of that, um, that system that we're seeing, um, more of those calming benefits. Um, in my hospital study, we did uh, assess the heart rates of infants and adults that were being worn in the carrier. And we saw heart rate decreases for both, um, infants and parents. Um, and these infants were infants that had, neonatal abstinence syndrome. So that's a syndrome associated with opioids typically. Uh, And so 
essentially we're showing that that baby wearing can help with symptoms of withdrawal. So there's something going on there. And it through all these different mechanisms, um, we're able to show that there is some benefit, even in a short term, right? Like even in that moment, even in that day that you're baby wearing, that you can decrease your baby's heart rate um, to a calmer state. So imagine that compounded over time, even if it's just six hours a week, you could see some some pretty big um, potential implications of that. I love it. And you talking about oxytocin reminds me of uh, something last week, Dr. Kathy Kendall Tackett talked about when I spoke to her about research on new research about oxytocin, uh, increasing our ability to pick up on social cues. So I now think about this baby wearing the increase in oxytocin, and then the joint increase in picking up the cues of you know, mom to baby, but also baby to mom. When you think about something like the still face paradigm, you're really looking at joint social attention to each other and the ability to see where the other's going. And I never would have put those two together till you just said it right now with oxytocin. And if that is possibly helping build those social skills between each other or the yeah. social understanding, it's not skills, but the social understanding between mom and baby through the physiological means of oxytocin. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, there there has been a study a few years ago that looked at baby wearing as enhancing language development. I'm not sure if you saw that. It was comparing parents going on a walk with a baby carrier versus a stroller. And those were even uh, like the the hard frame backpack style stroller uh, baby carriers. So there wasn't a face-to-face contact. It was contact, but on the back. Um, and so in my study, I, I looked at, I'm looking at some language skills and I am seeing that there are enhanced language skills with the babies that are in, that are being baby worn. Um, so there's, you know, whether it is like that you're engaging more because the baby's closer to you or they're hearing your vocal cords, or if there's just some simply what you're talking about, maybe it's just simply like a hormonal response that makes you, um, in a better position to pick up these things. Like there's so many questions about why it's working, but I feel like the more that I look at things, um, the more that I see reasons or reasons to baby wear really, you know, cause there's just more and more benefits and I really haven't seen any detriments, you know, there's, there's really none. So with an intervention like that, it's kind of like, well, why not? Why not do it then? That's uh, the issue of risks is so small that they're, well, it's negligible. I don't even know what risk, as long as your baby wearing properly, I guess, would be the only potential risk of not getting there. You know, I always shared this story when my daughter was young, we, I, like I said, she lived in the carrier and we would go for walks and I found one of the benefits was for me of suddenly seeing the world through her eyes. Like she became obsessed with the leaves. We would walk and she would want to stop. She'd reach out. She'd want to stop and just touch leaves for, I mean, she could stop at every tree for 10 minutes each and we could walk half a block in an hour. And it was at first kind of like, oh my God, I get why people use strollers because I think about going for a walk as I'm going for a walk as opposed to, oh, we're going for a walk and we're going to engage together. And I suddenly started appreciating what she was seeing too. I'm like, actually, you know what? That's really interesting. This looks kind of cool. And all the little fine details that she was picking up. I found myself starting to notice too, which had a calming effect for me as just 
someone who gets their mind caught in so much stuff, being able to step back and be like, no, actually, this is really interesting. I had a similar um, experience with my son when we were going through Costco and he was sitting in the, in the cart and then um, I got him out and I put him in the carrier and when I started walking with him, he suddenly was pointing at um, like he saw the goggles display and he was like glasses. And um, I was like, oh, no, those are those are goggles. And, you know, we sort of had a whole conversation and it made me realize we wouldn't have had that conversation if I had just walked away from him to get whatever I was getting and left him in the cart or even in the cart. Like sometimes like it's that vantage point that's different. Right. And suddenly he was at my vantage point and then was able to comment on what I was seeing. And that is a finding that I found in my study with the people that wore the most that had kind of over a hundred hours in the um, newborn period that they talked about that the re- one of the reasons why they liked to baby wear was because it was a developmental benefit for their baby. Like the things exactly like you're saying that the baby can see what I see. It's better than them being on the floor. Like they were aware that it was doing something helpful to their baby's development, but it was only the people that were wearing it a lot. Yeah. I think that speaks to that theory of mind piece. When we can actually take the perspective of our babies, I do think that enhances sensitivity and responsiveness because we're really getting to see the world from their level and, you know, and, and vice versa, they get to see it from ours. But I think we get an appreciation for what they're seeing as opposed to, just they're there and we don't really get ponder what they're seeing. We don't get that exposure as to how they interpret the world around them. Right. Yeah. And that I did want to ask about one other part of this, because I think that when I think about even just six hours a week of baby wearing, and I think about the effects, I can't help but go to the issue of greater maternal sense of ability or capacity Uh, that I think when you are wearing there. I I mean, maybe it's just me, but I found so much more was easier because with the calmer baby, I could get stuff done. I felt like I had things more together than perhaps I would have felt if my child was down on the ground and I'm navigating back and forth and I'm not getting laundry put away. I'm not getting, you know, dinner cooked. I'm not doing anything else because I feel like I'm bound by being close or having a screaming baby who really wants to just be close. Did you see any sense that moms felt more capable from this, that this was enhancing their own sense of capacity? Yeah, I definitely felt like that idea of what you're talking about of um, increased parental responsiveness, like knowing their baby and knowing what their baby needs and the confidence of being having that confidence to know that they can meet that need. Cause you're right. It's, there is a feeling of when the baby's upset and they put the baby in the carrier and the baby immediately calms. Part of the reason why the parent calms is because they're like, Oh, I, I identified what they needed and I met that need. And now like that, you know, I'm doing a good job as a parent is like, I mean, they're not saying that, but that's, that's kind of like the narrative. And I actually use that narrative a lot when I'm educating people on baby carriers instead of focusing on like, okay, pull this strap and do that. You know, when they got the baby in the carrier, then I make sure to draw attention. Like, look at your baby, look at your baby. How is your baby responding to this so that they can see and make that connection. It's not just about getting the baby in and like, okay, I'm moving on, but like see that connection, see what it's doing and that you did that. I 
was going to ask on that, actually, because I sometimes hear people complain about, you kind of touched on it earlier, my baby hated baby wearing. Yeah. Are there babies that truly hate baby wearing? Or is this just something that people, I, I feel like evolutionarily, it's a really bad trait to have. Because you don't know you're being born in, you know, what culture you're being born yeah. into. And we know the crucial impact of touch. So what's happening there? You know, that's a really interesting one. And I think it definitely needs more research there because I do find, you know, and every time I do these studies, there are a subset of people that have a hard time with it. It's a minority for sure. Most people really do like it. Um, some people need an extra help, right? Like within that first couple of weeks, they're like, I'm not doing it right or it's not comfortable. But then you, you usually can figure out a way to make sure that they're comfortable with everything. But there are some times where people are like, I just don't like it, didn't work for me. What's interesting about that is that when I look at their survey data, they also had a hard time bonding with their baby. They're significantly lower than the other moms. And so sometimes my theory, this is, you know, because I'm a scientist, I'm always coming up with theories is that maybe there's some trauma there and that the closeness of the baby is triggering for them because of their attachment, insecure attachment that they had as a child. And so sometimes, you know, we've seen it before um, where moms that have a hard time breastfeeding, for example, it's very triggering for them um, because of past trauma, that maybe that closeness and being in a carrier and the baby's right there, it's too much. And we have seen sometimes people that have had higher trauma, for example, they can't hold their baby chest to chest. They want to hold the baby outwards or a little farther apart. So I think that that means a lot of attention to that because I never want to force people into something that is uncomfortable to them. And maybe that's something that can be, a almost like a warning sign. Like if there's something that is uncomfortable about baby wearing, like, and we've done the carrier and fit and all that stuff, like let's pay attention to that. Cause the thing is, if the mom is stressed at all, the baby is stressed, right? Babies, the cortisol of moms and be, and dads, parents in the room is even associated with, with babies. They don't even have to be touching. It's even, it's in the same room. So to say that the baby doesn't like it, I feel like, you know, it's not just the baby. This is always a relationship. And so there's something in there that's stressful, um, provided that the baby is otherwise healthy, of course. That's fascinating because I do always wonder about that because, uh, like, you're talking about the synchrony between baby's cortisol yeah. and their parents. And I always say babies are so good. The one thing, they may not have all the language. They may not be able to feed themselves or do this or that. But they are so brilliant at picking up on nonverbal cues of what's going on around. Oh, it's yeah. like, that's what they are. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm upset. Everybody's upset. Like everybody's crying. Like this is not serving well. I know it's not serving well, but like, yes, it can be one of those situations where it is a, like a mutual thing that keeps reinforcing each other. So for sure. Yeah. I do feel though that if you could get baby wearing in smaller doses, maybe then it's start with five minutes or 10 minutes and yeah. build up. It seems like that could be a very effective kind of intervention, both for the trauma for yeah. someone who may have it or struggle with their past, but yeah. also to help build that bonding. Cause it's sad to me that, you know, there's that lack of bonding there between them because that's so. I would love to be able to work, you know, cause this is like a bigger study, but like if somebody was working with that, like one-on-one, -on -one, then you could have that time to work through 
to figure out like what's going on there and then maybe potentially change a different attachment pattern, a different relationship. Um, in my study, I do say they don't have to wear the baby for an hour a day all at once. They can break it up. Um, but it, it like, and that would be my recommendation if someone's struggling with it to just do it um, in smaller periods of time before, you know, the baby would get upset and so forth. A practical question here is because it was the study, did they get a choice of what carrier to use or was it the, they, they were given one? They did. So they did. I felt, yes, I felt like it, that was actually the funnest part of my um, <laughs> my job because I had this huge bin and I had all the carriers. And so I would show up, you know, and I'd be like, OK, here's your carriers. And like, let's pick one out. And so I would show them like a buckle style, like a soft structure carrier or I, or I show them more of a stretchy wrap. Um, or pre-sewn stretchy wrap and uh, or like an Asian style carrier. I think I had I had them all um, and then they could decide what they wanted. And then I also said, and if you don't like it or you want to swap it out later and try a different one, um, especially if it was one that they picked that was really just for a newborn, I'd say you can change it out for something that will grow with your baby at any point. Um, so some of the times I did come out and switch the carriers because they didn't like it or something like that. Um, and then if they had like, for example, with the dad, if he was living in a different house, then I let him have a carrier as well. Um, so that it was a part of a whole kind of family intervention, even though I didn't follow what the dad was doing. Um, but I wanted everybody to have their own carrier. Um, and so I do that actually in my new study with the substance use uh, recovery group that whether the baby is with a foster parent or a grandma, like everybody gets their own carrier so that the baby can be worn as like a collective. I love that. And was there a preference for a particular type of carrier amongst people? Was there one that stood out? And everyone wants to know because everyone I, has their stake in it, right? I know. And you'll notice I'll never like, I'll try to stay away from like specific branding because I do really feel it's about the practice of baby wearing. But I will say like when I looked, because people always ask me this, when I looked at the data, the ones that wore them the most, the most hours, it was usually people that had started out on a stretchy wrap and then moved into a soft structure carrier. So that seemed to be like just and that I didn't randomize that again because it was everybody's choice. Um, but that seemed to be something that was associated with like the highest amount of baby wearing. Which and that's more what I meant is was there a type of carrier that tended yeah. to be better than others because I mean, I I mean individual that, brands are going to affect you know and I will say now because when I did that study that like the soft structure carriers I felt like weren't made as well for little babies but now they are there's a lot more that will size down to accommodate like an eight seven eight pound baby um, where that really wasn't the case when I did it before it required like an insert or different things like that and um, I mean, there was some, but like it, I feel like now there's a lot more options that make that, um, a, you know, uh, easier. And to me, it doesn't matter. It's what are you going to use? And so if you find this the most comfortable, that's the best, right? Um, if you find this too complicated, um, that's not going to, then that's not going to be the carrier for you. You know, it has to be something that like, you feel like I want to use this carrier. So I try to always give people at least two kinds of options, um, so that they can feel like, you know, they have some role in that and what they're going to use. 
I have to kind of jump here because I know we're coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your time, but this is so fascinating and I could go, I I need to hear about the next study next. I'm going to have to come back to hear what happens with the substance abuse parents Mm -hmm. because I haven't read that yet. But I am curious, I'm hearing you talk about the trauma, the intervention, the everything. You're also a certified baby wearing educator. And does it not seem like that's an area... As far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, do you get training in any of that when you're doing that type of certification in terms of looking at things like how a mother responds, the trauma response? Because it seems like that would be an ideal addition. Like you have your PhD, infant and child development, like you have that expertise already there. I would imagine not all people doing that type of certification would have it. And yet it seems like they would be great on the ground people yeah. to identify and put forward some, yeah, some help so for that's these a families. Great point. I hadn't thought about that. And um, the way that I did my training is not the way that, you know, people are trained now. There's more formalized like school baby wearing educational classes that you can take in training. That's a little bit more, um, uh, it, it can even be tailored to different groups as well. Um, and so I am really interested in that because I do, especially since the, the, the hospital study I'm doing, I get a lot of requests. How can I get this into my NICU? Um, and so I think like I've been talking with some people about developing specific trainings for using baby wearing, like in hospital settings. Right. And like, I think that definitely needs to be more developed because I do think that when people are doing these kind of research, they need to have a baby wearing educator consulting at all times. It doesn't mean they have to do all of the educate, like individual education, but they need to be involved in all aspects because I would, you know, it would be not good to have anything go wrong and, it because like we weren't like paying attention to something that we should have. Right. So that's always my thing is to make sure we're being responsible and because baby wearing wind incorrectly is extremely safe. And so we want to make sure that that those practices are sustained always. Yeah. Cause it just seems to me like, you know, even just what you identified, if you have a baby wearing educator who sees resistance of someone who doesn't right. like it, you know, okay, now I know this might mean trauma. Where are right. my resources to get to kind of, you know, we always say every mother should have, every parent should have, you know, that circle around them of that network of support to kind of go. And it seems like, you know, a certified baby wearing educator would be a wonderful source of like, oh, I can flag these issues as yeah. this is what's coming up and this is where we need to go. It's not saying they have to be the therapist too. Right. It's saying that they need to know and identify that this is actually a potential issue. And it's not just, oh, the fit isn't necessarily good all the right. time. It's there's something possibly deeper going on. Right. Or like the, I'm not a therapist, but but maybe this is a situation where we need one. Right. And because people often don't have, you know, especially if you're just going into your pediatrician, the focus is on is baby gaining enough weight, really. I mean, that's what it is and making sure that there's everything else is okay. And it's not really on like, how are you bonding with your baby? I don't know that that's asked as a regular question. And then if they're not like that has huge implications, you know, I'm in a school of social work. So I'm always concerned about like how like we can prevent um, like child abuse and neglect and these sort of more serious extreme things, but maybe they can be identified early on or even just, you know, difficult postpartum depression where people get to this 
place where they feel completely like no other choice, no other options. But maybe if somebody saw some of those earlier signs, like, well, they're having a hard time even holding their baby, right? Like, so let's, let's intervene there before we get to this point where it feels really difficult. Well, we see, yeah, the research on how much that insecure attachment and trauma kind of passes generation to generation. And it would make sense if it's happening right at the start where you just never get that sense of strong attachment or bonding with your child because it's too difficult. But yeah, I think back, I don't think anyone ever asked me if I struggled to hold my baby or if my baby was like, we treat fussiness as, oh, it'll pass. Oh, all babies are fussy. There's this element to it. And yet And in some cases, yes, there's reasons for it. There may be, you know, a a dietary intolerance. There's a physical kind of realm for it. But if, as we went back to talking about babies that are picking up on these nonverbal cues of stress and struggle, they too are going to be very distressed. And it's going to lead to a dyad that never really gets to where they need to be. Or like there's something wrong with you if you're not enjoying every second of like holding your baby all the time. And I was definitely one of those people that it was very, I wasn't feeling all the the things that everybody else (laughs) was feeling. And so I was like, okay, if I can baby wear, then I can at least have this connection with my baby because I'm really not feeling like carrying him around all day long. And I I do want to say also, it's really important to know that just because you don't have a secure attachment, like as an adult, if you're coming in with an insecure attachment, that that doesn't mean you can't form a secure attachment with your baby. Like that is not something that is just like a given. It just means that awareness is really important because you'll have to work through things that are going to be harder than it is for people that are security securely attached that, Oh, everything seems so easy and natural. It's not going to feel like that. So you have to be more like aware. So you're more intentional of, Oh, my daughter keeps giving me hugs all the time. Like this should be enough. I've already hugged you. And it's like, well, th- it's, it's going to feel like that, but, but really it, it's okay. You know, and it, it's going to feel like a lot sometimes and it'll get better. And that first step is so important. I always think my mom was a classic example of that, where my grandmother had that old 50s parenting, which is don't touch your baby, pick them up every four hours, um, feed them and then put them back down. And that was her her life as a child. She did not have a secure attachment and did struggle. And then she had us and she took that first step. I mean, I didn't co-sleep, but she was breastfeeding on demand. She was doing everything. And as we got older, touch was still hard for her. I saw how hard it was. Like as an adult, we got a couple hugs, the pat on the back and everything like that. But man, she worked it as a baby. She made sure those first few years we were as responded to as she could give. And I think that set the stage for my ability to kind of go on and take it a step further with other things. And so I always want to remind people, you're not having to take the step from a struggle to being perfect or the exact type of attachment parent you may want to be. It's take one step, let your kids take the next step. But by making Absolutely. a step of being aware, you bring them a bit forward each time. And it's, yeah, maybe it takes seven generations to get down to something else, but your seven generations down are mm-hmm. a lot better than if yeah. that awareness and those steps had never been taken. 
Well, and I love what you said about that cultural piece because it's, I mean, I, I think everybody has the same story. It's the same with my mom and her mom too. It's like, it's not that that these women like didn't love their babies. They love their babies immensely, but it was a culture of like, this is what they were told of how they were supposed to parent. And they wanted to do the best things for their babies too. So we're just all trying to do the best things that we think is the best, right? And then you learn at some point, well, maybe that wasn't the best. And I can tell you right now, if I had a baby, I would do things different too. It's like we're constantly learning all the time and trying to do trying to do our best. So we can't really look back and hold ourselves accountable for something that was never known then. You know, it was just what it was. And so what all, all we can do is learn from that, be, be aware of that and how that might be impacting the way that we're interacting with their kids to be like, well, maybe it's not that you're so needy. Maybe it's that I'm so avoidant. Right. And so let's like kind of think about like shifting that and like where where do we want to be and how do we get there? Exactly. And I do, I want to go back and just add, you know, for my grandmother, they're both passed away now. But my grandmother, before she died, she did talk about how, oh, I was not a good mom. And I see, you know, your mom was a much better mom than I was and you're much better. But I did what they told me. This was her, yeah. you know, I followed what I was told. She goes, but I can look now. That wasn't very good at all. And I really like you're you're a, the best parent that I've seen. I'm like, well, thank you very much. But <laughs> I still say I have every day I go back and go, Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And it's a ongoing learning curve. Because I was just saying online the other day, it was to someone a friend that I feel like you never know all your triggers until you have kids. And then your kids get older and all these new triggers come up over and over and over and over again. It's like an ongoing therapy of, oh, I didn't oh, know yeah. I was so bothered by that. Okay, yeah. I got to figure that one out. And yeah. being aware of that is how we move forward. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But you'll never go wrong with lots of touch because if you can right. handle it and build up to it, it is such a valuable thing, Absolutely. which leads me. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Oh, sure. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I always hear and I really want to hear your perspective on it. And I, I, it wasn't a question that I actually had had given you ahead, but. I always get annoyed because I hear there's a certain train of thought in some parenting circles that baby wearing is disrespectful to the child that that is you're not consciously involved with them and therefore it's dismissive and there are there are parenting styles now that would eschew baby wearing completely they don't like the term baby wearing because you're wearing a child and they feel that even doing it is disrespectful to the child because you're not when you engage with the child you should always be conscious present focused on the child and that can't happen when they're on you, it happens, you know, maybe it can happen a bit, yeah. but, and I would love to hear you. I have many responses to this. Well, none of which I should probably order. say it loud. I mean, I mean, that's a tall order. I'm just hearing that makes me overwhelmed and I don't even have babies anymore. I just think that I'm always supposed to be present. I'm always supposed to be engaged. I'm always supposed to be like, you know, that's, oh man, that's an overwhelming sentiment to have to live up to. And I always like, I mean, I have a few responses to that because I always feel like you have to meet people where they are at. And and um, when I think about the people in my study that I've worked with that are just, I mean, they're trying to, they're trying their best to like, some of them are trying to get through high school and figure out where they're going to live. And this, their rela romantic relationship is, has conflict in it and their relationship with their own parents is not great. I'm, I'm making up some examples of some people. Um, so 
thinking on top of that, that they have to be this superstar mother is that's a lot. Um, and that's what I said before, what I liked about the, the part about baby wearing that I was really so drawn to was the fact of like, you don't have to like be all these things. You just have to be there. And I think, um, you know, the thing with, with infants when I, you know, and actually I hadn't really heard a lot of what you were talking about. So it must, I must not be in some of those circles. Um, I, I definitely, I've heard things about like kind of consent when like knowing, like when you're going to pick up the child, for example, like not picking them up from behind so that they see you coming and things like that. Um, but the thing is like, I think there is a physiological thing that's happening here. Um, and I'm actually super interested to, to think about it as it relates to like, um, preschool children, um, with my daughter, um, she now, now I know she has ADHD, but at, at the time when she was two or three, we really went through a really, really, really hard time where she would just had a lot of emotional, uh, regulation problems. Like she just, I mean, she was like zero to 10 all the time, like whether it was good or bad, it was just very extreme. And she would get herself worked up. She'd be crying hysterically. And I remember one time she's like, I don't know why I'm crying, but I can't stop. And it just really struck me that I was like, well, if you're really worked up and your autonomic system is so fired up, that would be hard to all of a sudden stop crying, like just all of a sudden stop. And the only thing that would work for her is like when I put her in the carrier. And the funny thing is, speaking of this she did not want to go in the carrier. That is not what she wanted. She would see it and she'd be like, no, I don't want to get in there. And I put her in the carrier. And when I tied it off, her whole body would just calm, like just that, that, that wrapping in together with me. And she would just sink into my chest. And it was the only thing that worked because it just, I felt like there was something that was outside of like your conscious thinking. It's not like I'm calming you down with my words, I'm calming you down physiologically. You know, it's kind of like, there's lots of things like that. Like if you go for a run, if you go sit in a bath, like there's things that you can do to your body physically that can help regulate. And I don't think we can just talk our way out of everything. Um, so I guess that's sort of like one reaction that I have to that, that um, it's, it's a very, you know, with kids, it's such a hard thing because we do have a culture of like, we want to respect our, our children, but they are also children and they don't know, and they can't always articulate what they need or what's best for them. And so that's where it's not a wrong thing to be like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this because I know it's going to be good for you. Even if you don't think that that's the good choice right now. Um, and we do it all the time. And I think when we do it in an intentional way, not of our own reaction to fear or stress or anger, then it is absolutely the right choice. I respect my children as people. Absolutely. But I also respect that, you know, my five-year-old does not have a brain that can always tell him what a given his left to his own devices, he would spend all our money on monster trucks mm -hmm. and we would be buying them a hundred a day as we go there's going to be times when the answer is not what he wants and it's still respectful because we're just coming from it from different perspectives as to what's needed. It's he gets upset and wants something. I say, let's have a hug instead. And it's again, that physiological calming yeah. that yeah. works without saying, okay, I'm going to give you whatever you want, so to speak. Right. Well, yeah. And this sort of verges into my, like, cause I've done lots of years of parenting intervention. So this sort of goes into that aspect, but 
giving your children choices is very stressful too. Like, even if you're like, do you want to wear your blue shoes or your red shoes? They can be like, I don't know. Like, which is the right one? Like, I don't know. Like that, like just being like, you know what? I know we're going to wear these blue shoes today. That's good for the weather. That's going to rain, whatever. Like you're going to wear your blue shoes. Um, even if there's some resistance to that, um, there's also some distress sometimes with giving them too many choices and letting them feel like they have to make the decision, right? When they're not absolutely, really yeah. And kind of going back to what you said about building that independence, I sometimes will start with, okay, well, here's this shirt and these pants. And if my kid says, actually, I want to wear that shirt, fine. You're you're telling me you have a right. choice already in mind, yeah. but yeah. maybe it took me presenting for you to say, actually, no, now that I see it, my brain goes to, I know I don't want that one. So I've made my choices to what I do want. And it's respecting that process. You're right. And so, you know, and you learn this when you look at your different children, like my, my daughter, she, I feel like she was dressing herself as soon as she could walk, she knew what she wanted to wear. And she went and did that. But my son, one of my, my older son, he was like paralyzed by this decision. And it was taking him like 45 minutes to get dressed in the morning. So for years, I just laid out his clothes because I was like, you know what, this is, and instead of looking at it as like, well, you know, my eight-year-old still wants me to lay out clothes for him because he can't get dressed in the morning. I instead reframed it as like, this is something that I can help him navigate, take this stress off for him. And he can do other things in his life that he can have control or choice over. He doesn't want to have control or choice over this. He just wants to get up and know that this is something he can wear. And it takes that stressor out. So we're going to do that. And now he can get up and he can get dressed just fine. So, you know, sometimes it's also giving your children a little bit of grace as well. I love that. And it's also, I think, just to add the third layer to it, is sometimes, you know, when parents get told about giving choice, they give it in areas the child doesn't care about choice, but take it away right. from the areas that the child wants their choice, right? right? Where they do yeah. need it. And it's navigating, knowing your child as to where do you need the choice and where, you know, can I just take that over because either you don't care or on the flip side, it is too distressing for you because too many choices make it so hard to kind of process. So right. there's so much that I think all goes back to that awareness and being with our kid, which goes back to starting young and having that exposure and time together to really get to know your child. Yeah. And, and going back to protecting your relationship, that that's the most important thing. So it was causing me so much stress every morning that like it was taking him so long to get dressed and we were ready to go to school and he wasn't ready. So why am I fighting against myself? Like, what is this overlying belief that I have that is making me so like insistent on him picking out his own clothes in the morning? Right. So then if I can get to that and realize, well, the most important thing is like some peace in the morning. Right. And protecting that relationship. So I'm not irritated with him. That's the most important thing. I don't want to be irritated with my child because of some, some expectation that I have that isn't warranted. Right. And, and so I think, yeah, like always coming back to the relationship is the most important thing. And so if something is hindering that relationship and taking a second look as to like, what, why is that so important to me? And is there something else I can do to, 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 you know, remedy that? Absolutely. I love it. Just to go back to baby wearing, which I still think links to all that. Cause I feel like that getting to know my child for me happens so much in those baby wearing moments because kind of like your story with the goggles, when you're wearing your child, 
you get to see their responses to things that they're with you. There's this proximity and you get to know their interests, their, their fears, the things they, they don't like in a much stronger way, I think, because it's when it works for people, if wearing your baby does work for you, because you get that, that perspective taking of time with them that you get to yeah. really get to know them, which is so crucial to not just bonding, but all of this parenting down the line that keeps the relationship going. Cause you know, where you can navigate those choices yeah. and and not. So going back to your research, though, from a policy perspective, how can you see this research being utilized to help families? I know we talked a bit about some of the things, but how would you like to see your research utilized in, in a broader public framework? Um, so... Yeah, I would really like in my dream world, like I would like this to be something that like when you go to your pediatrician, like that, like either it's recommended as something that you use or like if you're struggling that the questions asked about how is the relationship going with the baby? How are you doing? And that like baby wearing is recommended as something that like could be helpful, just like you're screening um, for postpartum depression and um uh, like any breastfeeding difficulties that like it's just part of like a battery of questions that you're asking about. Um, and that it's also done in the hospital. I would love all of the hospitals to have baby carriers and that they're used right there and like taught right there. And then that way you, you know how to use it before you even leave. And then you can, you know, that that's something that like you can continue on like at home. Cause you're right. It seemed uh, like one of my most like, okay, well, this is, this is the epitome of ridiculousness is one of my moms in my study. Um, she didn't have a car, um, but she had a baby car seat, right? Cause she can't leave the hospital without a car seat. And uh, when she got off the bus, she's carrying her infant car seat, you know, in her arms to, to meet me at a coffee shop. And it just was like, well, this is interesting. Like how safe is that baby in that car seat anyway, on the bus in this like plastic container um, versus standing up in like on her wearing a carrier, which we're all told you can't do, right? You can't be like, uh, you know, in a moving vehicle with cart with a baby carrier. So I just think there's a lot of like, and you know, and there's a whole thing about that. Like people talk about air travel, like why can't they have their baby in a carrier on the plane? And, you know, there's all these things about um, we've done so much work around infant car seats, but we really haven't like looked at that for um, baby wearing, like for carriers. Um and so I think then that contributes to people thinking that they're not as good or not as safe. And so there's that that messaging that we're always competing against. And um, that is something that I think, yeah, hopefully with more research, when people can say like, well, we're seeing this benefit or that benefit, then it'll lead to, well, like, let's see how we can develop a safe way to transport, particularly in places where they're not driving on a car. Like what about these, what about in places where they leave the, the hospital on a motorcycle? So how are we going to transport those babies home? Like, you know, we really need to, 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 to start moving in those directions that make it more accessible and um, where, where, yeah, where it makes sense. I had no idea that in the U.S. you weren't supposed to be on a bus with a baby carrier because I tell you, I went on a lot of buses with my kids. Yeah, I don't know if that like I could be wrong about that as far as like, but you definitely see people on buses with their babies in a car seat because they don't have a carrier. That's more what I was, you know, like that yeah. it is more um, 
recommended, like you can't leave the hospital. That is a rule. You cannot leave the hospital without a car seat. But it has nothing to do with what if you don't have a car? Like, why do you need that? Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. There is no logic to that. That makes no sense to even see how a mom is going home. That is, I mean, I think you're right. Those are all areas where just right off the bat, you would have a massive impact on, I mean, a lot of different areas for people, both practical in terms of not having I, car seats always seem really uncomfortable to carry around. I will be honest. I went straight for one that stays in the car, but was good for newborns. None of those click out because that seemed way more difficult to be carrying around a car seat than to just pick up my child and put them straight into a carrier as I got out of the car. But um it does seem like that's practically a big issue for families. And it's not safe to have a child in a car seat that isn't strapped in on a bus or whatnot. There's, yeah, that doesn't seem safe at all. No. Wow. And that's the thing is like, well, car seats are great because like they save lives when they're in cars, but then what happens is then they get used for other things that are not great. And so, yeah, it's about thinking about like, yes, exactly. Yeah. We need car seats for in the car, but we don't, you know, you don't need the car seat for the baby to take a nap in and like that, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. Totally. So I can't thank you enough. I This is so fascinating. I love that you've dived in on this. I still don't know anyone else doing more baby wearing research. So I hope you will continue to yeah. do this for everyone because we need it. Um, clearly, we need it when you see how little is out there. You've mentioned you've done the study with substance abuse moms. So you've got that coming out. Is that study finished or is it still in progress? I'm still collecting some data on that. And so we just published two papers from that. One was showing the heart rate and the other one was showing about nurses' perceptions of how useful it was in the NICU. Um, So I'm hoping to start analyzing more of the data that I've collected with the survey measures and and the videotapes to, to see how that looks in that population. And what's next then for you after that one? Where are you going to next on the baby wearing front? Um, so we're going to hopefully start that study on the oxytocin and the cortisol. So hopefully once we're able, so the, the issue right now, um, with the COVID climate is that, um, we don't have access in the hospital. Um, so we've been delayed on getting that study going, but hopefully if things start to look better, um, we'll be able to get back in the hospital so that we can collect that data with brand new newborns. They'd be, you know, two days old and baby wearing and measuring um, what happens with their oxytocin when they're in the carrier. So that will be, that's the one we're ready to get going on as soon as we are able to. And one last question. Are you going to be doing research on non-high risk populations with baby wearing? I, you know, I'm not opposed to it for sure. Um, I don't have it right now on my, uh, my next studies because most of my studies are smaller. The, the number is smaller. And so with what we consider like a normative population, you're looking at people that already like have a lot of assets. And so they're not at increased risk for having difficulties bonding with their baby. So then you just need more people to be able to show any effect. Um, so that's why I selected people particular that were more, more vulnerable because I want to show that it can ha- have an effect and be helpful for people that might be at a greater risk of having some difficulties. Um, so it's not something I, I wouldn't be opposed to, but I would have to um, 
do something that would be more large scale. And also, I think the other tricky thing is, um, you know, baby, which is great, baby wearing has become more common. So now people um, use carriers anyway, right? And so to try to create like a clean sample of like, these people are baby wearing, this, these people are not, is, is becoming harder to do. Um, so there are some research, some groups of people doing research on more of people that are baby wearing, like looking at some some data um, so we can get some of that, but it is it is a little bit different than a randomized study. Absolutely. And I do think, yeah, more bang for your buck when you're looking at, you know, changing groups that otherwise have a harder time for it. Right. All right. I cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking to me. It has been an absolute joy to have you here. And I just love that you are doing this. I will have to go and get those new papers now that just came out. <laughs> and I really can't wait to hear the oxytocin one because that's pretty fascinating. And I would love to see if it links to those social cues as well. Yeah, that is an interesting question. Thank you so much for having me. I love always, it's my favorite thing to talk about. So um, yeah, it's just been great to have this conversation. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in finding out more or becoming a certified baby wearing educator, you can check out the links in the show notes below. Now join me next week as I welcome Dr. Lisa Gatsky-Kopp to discuss her research on how parenting affects children's emotional development. As a leader in this field, she is incredible, and I believe it is a crucial conversation for all families. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.